bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. It's interesting that you knew these truths from before the creation of human history even. And that you give us the time and your divine patience and your providence to enlighten us to these facts as we're delivered and sanctified. We are most great, grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work as the anchor of this faith 2,000 years ago so that even this evening is a reality. We do just ask your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 25. On Sunday, we began with a friendly reminder that life is about relationships. The Bible describes life through the lens of personal relationships, with emphasis on personal even. We all relate to one another somehow. But the Bible uh, through and through really talks about a personal relationship first with Jesus Christ, and then that's how we get to the Father. But then also it expounds upon um, our relationships with each other, that they are inevitable. First and foremost then, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. We also added the pinnacle characteristic of personal relationships is love. Love trusts, it gives, it shares, it receives, it binds. Again, the pinnacle of personal relationships is love. Love trusts, it gives, it shares, it receives, it binds. And so that really is the pinnacle of relationships, um, whether it's through Jesus Christ to God the Father or to each other. And it does make sense since God is love. He gives it to us so that we might respond to him in this way. He is the masculine initiator and we are the feminine responders. It's how he quote unquote romances us in a sense. He reaches out to us across whatever chasm uh, there might be between us and shows us love. That's what happened at salvation. That's the issue of grace. I can see, I can see that. Thank you. That's the issue with grace, that he actually expresses his love by saving us. And so in that sense, he's the masculine. We are the feminine responders. 1 John 4.19 in the message we, though, are going to love, love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first. And that's just sort of an expanded translation of we love because he first loved us, which is the New American version. We, we though, are going to love, love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first. So that is really the long-standing or the initiating dynamic between God and his creatures. It's love. Uh, there's a innumerable, almost, uh, ways in which he expresses his love, as we'll see before the end of this evening's service, through the Word of God, including a multitude of commands that we have the opportunity to obey or disobey. 
As a point of review, though, before we get on, uh, get on with that, McLaren's expositions on 1 John 4.19 read this way. Very simple words, 1 John 4.19. But they go down into the depths of God, lifting burdens off the heart of humanity, turning duty into delight, and changing the aspect of all things. He who knows that God loves him needs a little more for blessedness. He who loves God back again offers more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then he has this. When the heart is melted, it streams, or the streams flow wherever there is a channel. The river, as he goes on to show us, parts into two heads. And love to God and love to man are, in their essence and root principle, one thing. I like to look at that as being in the sphere of love. We considered a passage that connects the basic fact that love cannot help but express itself through giving, that love by its very nature overflows into the cups of others. We might say it this way, true love overflows, and that's that word that's translated often, some variant of abundant, abound, abundance, and it's from the Greek word parasuo in 2 Corinthians 9.8, as well as many other places. Go to 2 Corinthians 9.7. 2 Corinthians 9.7, we'll highlight that, highlight that again and then press on. True love overflows. That's how you know that you have it, that you begin expressing yourself maybe in ways that you had never expressed in the past. Maybe they're, as McLaren says, less dutiful and more just who you are because you can't help but express yourself. You go about life uh, overflowing into the laps of others, whatever that means for you. 2 Corinthians 9.7, Each one must do uh, just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God, I mean, what's the greatest thing you can give? Yourself. I had someone say that to me this week, you know, the greatest thing you can give someone is your time. Let's face it, you can cut somebody a check, you can do this, you can do it, but really it's about time. It's about giving someone yourself, and then when you're in their presence, you give them who you are. There's a lot of people, I think, they specialize in being physically present, but they're somewhere else, and uh, anyone that loves that person knows that they're not really there. And that's a lesson that I think we can all learn, especially as we get hung up on the details of life, uh, especially in uh, close relationships like marriages. Be present in your marriage. If you're there, be there. Don't be the, the guy that's in his recliner and just, ah, I'm here. I was here. I was here during Thanksgiving. Yeah, you were here, but you weren't here. You were present, but you weren't actually there. There's a huge difference, amen? Yeah, and that's the greatest thing you can give then, and God loves a cheerful giver, is you. Your very presence, just being present when loved ones are. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound, parasuo, is the word, to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance. There it is again. So it overflows from God to you and then from you to others for every good deed. So you have an overflow, an abundance, perisuo, for every good deed. The Spirit stopped us here and asked us to ponder that phrase, 
every good deed, and I hope you did that from Sunday on, just thinking about that. Well, what is every good deed in my life, in your life, you know? What's the greatest of all good deeds? This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. John 15, 12. That's a commandment, which means you have a say in it. The answer is to love. That is the greatest of all good deeds. To summarize that, we love. Everything in the Bible is meant to guide us to this end, that we love. It's the greatest deed of all. Everything in the Bible is meant to guide us to this end. And God, the Holy Spirit's ministry, is meant to accompany or empower us to that end also. So we basically have a whole book that teaches us what love is and how to love. What does it mean? What did it mean when Jesus Christ said, in summary, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for another human being? What does that mean? What, did, you know, what, did he, what does the Bible mean when it says you should esteem others as more important than yourselves? What does that mean? Well, they sound awfully quippy, doesn't it? Sounds like, sounds like a little catchphrase you might say at a party, you know, or at some rallying speech or something like that. Sounds like something a politician might even rip off. But there's so much more to the Bible in amplifying those simple statements from our Lord. So the Bible's right there teaching us what it is to love, uh, what it means to be loved. Uh, We love because He first loved us, even the transaction, the motivation behind the love, not just the expression of it. And then we also know from Scripture that God, the Holy Spirit, and experience, if you're saved, that God, the Holy Spirit's ministry is meant to accompany and empower us to that end also. So we have these two forces, if you would, the Bible and the Spirit pushing towards the same end, that we what? That we love. That's the pinnacle of any personal relationship is love. Now, speaking of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives, He had us revisit an old friend that's been on the back burner for a little while. And I'm just sharing here for what it's worth from a teacher's teacher's perspective. It's a real joy to see how he goes about teaching this congregation. As he's done with the concept of the filling of the Spirit, he often draws you out of, let's say, hiding. He often draws you out of hiding with a few well-placed questions, good questions that challenge your complacency, if there is any. Then he introduces something more substantial to you so that the honest answers you were seeking as a result of his piquing your interests are met with biblical truths. Then he often leaves the subject alone. So he asks a question, a good one, gets your interest peaked, gets you out of hiding, so to speak, away from complacency, uh, you know, that whole thing, gets you out of that mode of thinking, uh, in other words, gets you sort of fired up, asks a few questions, and then gives you appropriate answers to those questions. And oftentimes, you're not ready. You see it in print, and you're like, but everything I sort of know is getting jumbled a little bit here. And so he's done that with this concept of the filling 
of the Spirit. He asked some questions. We did some upfront work, some very meaningful, poignant upfront work. But for many of you, based on feedback that I've received for the last, I don't know, two years, it's been a progress. And there's been sort of revelation upon revelation for those of you who have been honestly seeking truth on that topic. So then he often leaves the subject alone and works within each of you as individuals for a time. And then finally he'll circle uh, circle back around from a different angle, like he's doing right now, and drive the point home even further. In other words, the overall process of teaching you truth isn't always, hardly ever actually, encapsulated in a single lesson or in a single series even. And you should be comfortable with that. So that's just me as a teacher sharing with you that that's often how he goes about turning the Titanic. (laughs) It takes rudder changes and then, you know, a new heading, then another change and a new heading and then, you know, and this kind of a thing. And that's perfectly fine. And as I was thinking about that, um, that process, because I've always, as a shepherd, it's just the way we're built, I suppose, I always have multiple things relative to this flock, to this congregation. What's he doing? How's he going about doing this thing? Um, How's he going about doing that thing? And I was reflecting on this sort of turning around and the challenges and the honesty and the earnestness that I've seen in all of you. And I was reflecting, this is one of the primary reasons why he's also been pushing during all of that, anytime we have you know, sweeping changes uh, and such, things that make people uncomfortable, people that make, or things that make people want to uh, run away and go back into hiding because it's too upsetting to their little religions and what have you. One of the primary reasons he's also been pushing this point, church family, God ordained local assemblies and the spiritual gifts, plural, not just this one, plural. God ordained local assemblies and the spiritual gifts that make them function as a grace service to the saints. Commitment to family is a critical facet of spiritual growth. Satan attacks all families. This I have learned through both studying the Word of God and experience. Satan attacks all families, not just household, but also church. He hates families. And this, my friends, is arguably, now don't get upset with me, but I hope you know what I'm saying, arguably the most important family you have. That's why he said, I'm going to divide... Mother and daughter and father and son and in-law and blah, blah, blah. Why? Because this family stands and transcends time itself even. It's eternal. We're going to be with each other now. Ha, ha, ha. Forever and ever. (laughs) Only difference is I probably have my hair back. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. I'm going to get some of Sean's suavecito. (laughs) 
See, you have to share in heaven, too, because you can't, that's a sin, not to share. <laughs> I don't like that anyway. I like dippity, I was a dippity-doo man back in high school. Anybody remember that? The green stuff? Anyways, I digress just a tad. Church family. God ordained local assemblies in the spiritual gifts that make them function as a grace service to the saints. Commitment to family is a critical facet of spiritual growth. Now, if there's any part of you that says, I, you know, I don't know if I believe that, then Satan got to you. Satan got to you. Commitment to family is a critical facet of spiritual growth. There's a reason why the so-called divine institution of families exists. Satan attacks all families, not just household, but also church. So as a side note, Satan's too smart to simply throw stones at us or try to use a rogue moron here or there. I mean, he does that, but an institute or a local assembly like this is not really upset anymore by rogue idiots. He'll use much subtler attacks like the ones he's been using ever since I began teaching the gospel proper. Actually, I'll correct that. He's been launching battalions at us in overdrive ever since we changed the name to Freedom in Christ Ministries a couple years back. That's when it kind of started, an avalanche of attacks. And it got way worse when I started teaching on the gospel. You know, it's bold, and I'm not saying it has anything to do with me. I just follow commands. It's, it's really bold for an entire ministry to take mm, 13, 1,400 hours of lessons. I don't know, it's like 30, I want to say it was somewhere around 30,000 pages of notes, and go, let's start new. That's very bold. But when it's the right thing to do, and we do it, Satan is bull. Not a happy camper at all. At all. And ever since I started teaching on the gospel, just about every family I know is under awful attack from every which way, somehow or another. It's unbelievable. Why? Satan hates families. You should repeat that to yourself every day, ten times a day for the next week. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But you should. Satan hates families. Say it. Say it with me. Satan hates, Satan hates families. There were some people that were not speaking. I'm not going to go until you all say it. I'm looking. Say it with me. Satan hates All right, good. We're good. We're good. We're all done. That was the lesson. Just kidding. Some of you really need to let that sink in. I mean, really, let that sink in. Don't just let it roll off your tongue as some de facto ubiquitous sentiment against Satan. He actively hates your families. And that's right. Let it be personal. Be agitated. Be up in arms about it. So I'm not the only one. It's very personal. He hates you. He hates your families. He wants everything that you have that's good to be destroyed. 
Because anything that's good comes from God the Father in heaven and brings glory right to God, right? Especially families. I mean, families, come on! A bunch of humans in one place? Something's bound to go wrong. And it does. And so what does he do? He waits around and goes, oh, there's someone. Here we go. We got a player. We got a player. Let's go. Shh. Fiery dots, fiery dots. Family blows up. That's the way it goes. He actively hates your families, household, church, whatever. For example, and I was thinking about this, and I don't know why he brings this up. Don't look at me. But he does. For example, here's one way in which he goes about attacking families. Yesterday, I was doing some studying as I was uh, writing a book, adding to a book. Yesterday, I was doing some studying on the differences between sin and evil in the Bible and came across an article on a Bible conference, a very large one, where over the years, I suppose thousands of people have attended um, not in lay people too, not just uh, pastors and what have you, but a Bible conference that stopped asking the attendees. Now, many of them were theologians and pastors, and their spouses and their kids, and then you know lay people, what have you. So, at this Bible conference, they actually stopped asking attendees if they were exposed. To pornography. They stopped asking if they were exposed. Rather, since the history of the, conf- uh, the conference, the answer has swelled to well over 80% yes. The organizers have since stopped asking if, but rather to what degree. This is a Bible conference. To what degree are the attendees affected by it? From hardly to addicted. Hmm. So, I mean, I personally believe that given the pervasiveness of it, given the destructiveness of it, given the addiction our society seems to have to it, that pornography is one of the greatest single attacks on families today. The Spirit's had me teach about this topic on a number of occasions over the years, sometimes with the greater topic of sexual sins, and for good reason. I'm not, by the way, I'm, I'm not anywhere near the only pastor who the Spirit has teaching on this. As far as I can see, almost everyone I've ever come across, and I don't do a whole lot, so it's not like I have a huge but. It means something when the ones you actually do spend the time to go look at are all talking about the same problem in families, whether it's church family or the family. It's a big problem, folks. And it's increasing as an issue. But that's not tonight's topic. I just, we'll leave that for another time. The, the point on the board is this. Oh, up here on the board, sorry. Satan hates families. Some of you really need to let that sink in. Don't just let it roll off your tongue as some de facto uh, blank check, if you would, sentiment against Satan. He actively hates your families, your household, your church, etc. 
there are things that you might not stop to realize are aimed at maiming your family. And I was just thinking about how does Satan go about these things? And this is just food for thought. Satan hates your household family. For example, here's just a bulleted list of things that reveal this to us. Media promotes anti-authority orientation. I mean, come on, if there's one quickly identifiable, openly identifiable problem, it's authority orientation. Parents have lost their ability to control their own kids. Husbands have no control whatsoever over their entire families, including their spouses. It's a big old free-for-all. Why? Heck, family structure is not even family structure anymore. Half the people living together aren't even married. Not to mention they have children and everything else. It's like, what happened to the family? What do I need authority structure for? What do I need to look for a good man for? What do I need a woman that's actually going to submit to me for? Well, I just, you know, this is what media promotes. Anti-authority orientation. Schools normalize premarital and homosexual sex. Pornography, even in the so-called suitable TV movies. I'm talking like PG-13. You can't even watch a a PG-13 movie now. I have to be careful when I'm watching it with Sean to make sure no garbage gets in his soul. It's unbelievable. And that's TV and movies. This is mainstream cable. People are basically nude half the time. And every subject is on the topic of sex, it seems like. Pornography, regardless of what to what degree, destroys sexual intimacy between spouses. Technology creates islands within a household. You got people, I went to McDonald's the other day. All right, I go to McDonald's once in a while. I lost 13 pounds, so don't, I'm just saying, that's my blurge, you know. It's my splurge, and that was before. But anyways, I went to McDonald's, and I passed two tables. One, a mother, assumably, with her children, three kids. One's on the floor rolling around in the dirt. The other one's, like, pulling the other kid's hair, and they're making a ruckus, and everybody's like, what in the heck is going on over there? And the mother's on her cell phone. Then I go down to the end. I'm like, i got to get out of here. I'm going to get angry. I'm not going to enjoy my McChicken. So I go over in the corner, and there's another woman with just her daughter. And her daughter is craving her mother's attention. I mean, like, doing, even being a little naughty sometimes just to get her mother's attention. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's on the phone the whole time. Mom, are we going to do it? Yeah, we'll do that thing the whole time. Then they pick up and laugh. It's not unlikely to see a whole family at a restaurant and three out of four people are on their phones. And then you see them laughing. <laughs> They're texting each other from two feet away. <laughs> like, what is wrong with people? That's how we, you know, there's no intimacy anymore. Technology creating islands within a household even. Distance, quote unquote, between spouses promotes infidelities. People are not even interested in their spouses anymore. Why? Because they're too busy doing work. They're too busy holed up in their own little private cubby holes. Or they're on their technology or they're watching 52,000 channels. Some people have eight different pop-up screens so they can watch eight different football programs at the same time. Honey, get out of the way. I can't see the seventh one. 
trying to vacuum. Family traditions like eating dinner at a table together, replaced by fast food, undisciplined structure, etc. So you get the picture. And I think all of you are laughing because what else do you do? So when it comes to your families, beginning with the heads of the household, the husbands, the fathers, you must fight the good fight. That's why we had the men's conference last um, year. Men have to be men. You have to fight the good. It doesn't mean you're not going to screw up and fail. Because we will. But we have to fight through it. We have to fight the good fight for the sake of our families. In my personal experience, most husbands and fathers are too weak and preoccupied with ungodly distractions to actually fight this battle. And as the leader goes, so often goes the family, right? If the family sees the leader says it's not worth fighting for, why would they fight for family? If the leaders of the house, the husband and the father, isn't worth, deems it not worth fighting for, what, what do they got going? And it's every man for himself. All right, we're already islands, so. Satan hates your church family. Again, the very first statement, same one, not an accident. The world promotes anti-authority orientation. I would say, yeah, the biggest problem I've ever faced ongoing in the ministry is authority orientation. If the people that have attacked me personally or this ministry had more authority orientation, it wouldn't be a problem. Would you agree with that, DJ? Yeah. I mean, there are specifics, but the core issue, authority orientation. You might be shocked. Church leadership utterly failing, leaving ministry to Satan's agents. For example, coexist signs, women pastors and so-called evangelists, feminism, homosexual marriage, spiritualism, etc., etc., and the thing goes on and on. Who's fighting? Who's saying, wait a minute, that's not in the Bible? That's not in the Bible. I, I read a book recently, it broke my heart, a lot of good things in it. Re- read a book, at the end of the book, it was a woman author promoting a little feminism. Says, oh yeah, there are women apostles. I said, what in the heck are you talking about? Well, I guess if they can be apostles, then they can be what? Just about anything. Hmm. Churches have become places of big business, selling the word, massive love offerings. You guys know what a love offering is, by the way? That means everything that goes, every check that comes in that says love offering goes directly to the pastor. That's what a love offering is. There's nothing, they exist for a reason. Like if you want, at the end of the, you know, if it's Christmas or birth, something like that. You want to give someone a special prayer, fine. But these guys are running entire ministries and they call them love offerings. People are sending thousands and thousands of dollars thinking they're going to the ministries, but they're going to the individuals. Tax-free. Love offerings. You should watch it sometime. You'll see it. At the end of the little programs, the ridiculous programs, the prosperity teachers, send me $1,000. You don't realize you're actually sending him $1,000. Personally. 
Competitive atmospheres, that's disgusting. Our church is better than yours. My favorite. How many people in your church again? Okay, that's three less than mine, so you lose. What? What? Rogue Christianity, one of my quote-unquote favorites, has plundered local assemblies, forsaking assembling against scriptural commands, not assembling together for as long as it is called today, not encouraging one another. Why? Self-absorption. They grew up as islands, they become islands. They don't think they have to, to assemble together. Why? Because they're self-absorbed. That's what they're being taught. Self-absorption. And you think that these things aren't undermining the family, the local assembly, the one, the institution that God ordained? Rogue Christianity has plundered local assemblies, forsaking assembling altogether, and lack of financial support. That's my other favorite. I had someone ask me the other day, can you go back, since you took down all those lessons, can you go back and dig out some lessons for me from 2010 so that I can listen to them? This person has never sent one cent to support this ministry. Not even a cent. And and they're reasonably well off, let's put it that way. So when it comes to your church family, beginning with me, the head of this local family, local assembly family, we must fight the good fight of faith. From what I can see, most pastors, if they're even possession, in the possession of the spiritual gift, many of them aren't, wrong gender even, from what I can see, most pastors are too preoccupied with appeasing their congregations. I doubt anyone in this congregation will have accused me of that. Is that fair? I'm assuming from the laughing that's fair. And I only list these things as food for thought in support of the simple fact that Satan hates families, any instance of them, hates them. Why? Well, for one thing, Satan knows what Christ knows. Go to Matthew 12.25. Matthew 12.25. I mean, you do know that Satan's a genius. You know he's not stupid enough to stand right in front of you and try to undermine you to your face. He's going to do everything behind your back like, a, like the serpent that he is. Matthew twelve twenty five. But remember, I don't know if you know that or not, but even when um, you know, the book of Genesis was written and all that, uh, serpents were considered uh, beautiful. They, they had an aesthetic to them. Curves and everything. So... <laughs> Satan's very smart. He's not going to use something ugly standing in front of you. He's going to use something beautiful to entice you, to seduce you away from so that he can destroy any family that you're a part of. So don't think that you've got it all nailed. Matthew twelve twenty five, and knowing they, their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Satan knows that, just like Jesus knew that. 
That's a principle. Divide a household up and you can pick them off one at a time. But gather them together in the unity of faith, you're going to have a hard time with that household. And Satan knows it. So he's going to try to divide your families. The principle is that there is certain strength and resolution in unity, particularly in the faith. Go to Psalm 133.1. Psalm 133.1. There's a certain strength in resolution in unity. That's why we have families. And if we don't learn to love and relate to each other in the family, there's no unity. And if there's no unity, a house divided, what? Falls. Yeah. Yep. Psalm 133.1. <clears throat> Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together how in unity. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. To enjoy family unity. How about in the New Testament? Go to 1 Corinthians 1.8. 1 Corinthians 1.8. Satan knows that. What's the atmosphere like in a household when everybody's at peace with each other? It's very good, isn't it? You're more likely to actually sit down and have dinner together, aren't you? You're, more, you're less likely to make up an excuse as to why you can't. 1 Corinthians 1.8 <clears throat> Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. What family is he talking about here? The church family. He's talking about the unity of the faith, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by close people that there are quarrels among you. Oh, that's so grotesque. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. That's that competitive, competitive atmosphere I was talking about in that list. How Satan will use such fleshly things. What do you mean you're of this one, and this one, and this one? Well, I listen to so-and-so, and he's 112, so he's much better than your pastor. Well, I listen to so-and-so, and he's better looking and more well-spoken, so he must be better than your pastor. Come on, you idiots. Satan loves that stuff, loves that garbage. Anyone who pits pastors against each other is a complete moron. And it is indicative of people who suffer from sophomorism. People that are looking for the highfalutin pastor for the one sake of being an elitist, 
I am hiding much anger right now. Much, much anger. They are among the biggest fools in Christendom. Where in the Bible does it say that we're to seek elitism? And what kind of person anyways goes to a church to be an elitist? What kind of person goes to a church to establish themselves as better than the next person? The things that you're going to learn in an honest church will completely blow those things out of the water anyways. So what kind of jerk goes to a church looking to be establish themselves as better than their, the people they're supposed to be relating to? I don't know, most of you can relate firsthand. Why don't you tell me? Oh, did I offend you? How about another passage to amplify what the Bible has to say about unity in the church family? Go to Ephesians 4.1. Ephesians 4.1. Just got quiet in here. How come? Oh, again. There he goes again, not appeasing his congregation. You know, he goes says those things that just cut to the bone. Ah, oh, guy. Hope he's better when he has his hair back in heaven. Maybe he'll lose some of that edge. Listen, folks, it's not my edge. God the Holy Spirit's lesson. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Satan loves when peace is gone. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I'll give you one last passage in the Message Bible up here on the board. 1 Peter 3, 8-12, to and the Message reads this way. Again, we're just establishing the simple fact that the Bible has a calling towards unity in the church family. And Satan hates your church family. 1 Peter 3, 8-12, message, summing it up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you. No exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead, bless, that's your job, to bless You'll be a blessing and also get a blessing. Continuing, whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. And then finally, 8 through 12 in the message, God looks on all this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked but he turns his back on those who do evil things. Again, the point being amplified here is this, up here on the board. Satan hates families. If we weren't in a series, that would be the message title this evening. Satan hates families. Some of you really need to let that sink in. Don't just let it roll off your tongue as some de facto sort of blank check, if you would, sentiment against Satan. 
He actively hates your families, household, church, etc. And don't be surprised if it's you, that you're playing the agent for a while. So stop pointing fingers in your head going, oh, that, you know, that one that keeps coming on Thanksgiving, I hope they just don't invite her next year. She's such a witch. You might be the one, my friend, that has been destroying families with your problems. So you need to look in the mirror and say, what have I done? Isn't that the first place we're supposed to look? What have I done to promote the destruction of families? What have I done? So don't just blame Satan. Say, Satan's such a serpent. He's such a slippery, seductive little jerk. Well, what about you? Okay. That was just our little side note. Imagine that. little side note. Back to it. It's really quiet in here. I'm just going to say, it's really quiet. Good. Back to where we were when we began considering love overflowing into each other's laps. Go back to 2 Corinthians 9 8. 2 Corinthians 9 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, overflow, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance, overflow for every good deed. The point we landed on before we departed on the side note was every good deed. What's the greatest of all good deeds? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. To love, in other words, John 15, 12, we love everything in the Bible is meant to guide us to this end, and God the Holy Spirit's ministry is meant to accompany and power us to that end also. And this is what took us to our pointed study on the filling of the Spirit on Sunday. We began with understanding this key principle regarding the motivation of the Spirit in His ministry up here on the board. Everything the Spirit's going to motivate you to think, say, or do is going to be consistent with love. Everything. Everything the Spirit's going to motivate you to think, say, or do is going to be consistent with love. Again, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed. And God, the Holy Spirit's right there with you. He is God after all, and He's going to assure that He convicts you in the right direction so that you do do every good deed. Because good fruit means glory to God. So concentrate. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us two tremendous eternal gifts. Two Tremendous eternal gifts up here on the board. The Word and the Spirit. It's upon these two fundamental active gifts that our entire spiritual life is animated. Think about that. 
The one that's not there is your free will, but that's implied. But as far as the gifts given, the Word and the Spirit, it's upon these two fundamental active, and they are active, gifts that our entire spiritual life is animated. Hebrews 4.12, go there. Hebrews 4.12, John 14.6.26, go to Hebrews 4.12. These are active things, folks. That means they're pushing towards that end, which is to love. That's the greatest of deeds. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, if you have the word of God in your soul, guess what? You're going to get convicted against it, for better or worse. That's what it's there for. And there's no hiding out. That's why the writer of Hebrews gets so granular there. Able to divide between soul and spirit. Can you even fathom that? I can't. To judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Can you really get to the... He can. That means there's no escape, in other words. The only thing you can do is reject it. Again, the point on the board, it's upon these two fundamental active gifts. We just saw that the Word of God is what? Alive. It means it's powerful, or active, excuse me, and powerful. Go to John 14, 16. John 14, 16. That's the value of having it in your soul, folks. That's why I keep telling you, read your Bibles. But sometimes I get confused. So what? Keep on reading. We're never going to read the whole Bible together. So what are you going to do? Forget about the rest? I don't, have enough, I don't have you enough time to read the whole Bible with you. So what are you going to do with the rest of the Bible that we don't get to at class? You're going to forget about it? Well, that would be a crying shame, considering it's alive and powerful. John 14, 16 I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will, that's, that's the indwelling of the Spirit, by the way. He will be in you. Now you have his power. He indwells you. He doesn't leave you. Even all this talk about filling, don't get those things confused. Filling just means controlling. Wind in your sails. You're listening to him. That's what that means. But he's forever indwelling you, you see? This thing. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments, that's the word, folks, and keeps them, is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So guess what? You have the Word that's alive and powerful, and you have the Helper, God, the Holy Spirit, who's active in your life. Who's going to take the Word and animate it in such a way, spiritually speaking, so that it has some convicting ministry on your good conscience in time. All that going on inside of you. Don't ask me to draw it out, but it's, it happens. And it's a supernatural reality. So again, the point on the board is very simple. It's upon these two fundamental active gifts that our entire spiritual life is animated. Now, just reflecting again, I'm almost out of time. One of the greatest areas for any believer to be confused about, believer, one of the greatest areas for any believer to be confused about is with respect to the Holy Spirit. For a variety of reasons, many due to religious perversions, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which for all intents and purposes is actually very straightforward, has been misunderstood. He's going to do anything to convict you to do the right thing. That's his ministry. You got the Word of God? Okay, I'm going to actually bring it to remembrance for you. You don't know what the right thing to say when you go and evangelize somebody, as Evangelist Granny said, he'll bring that up just the right way. Don't even worry about it. What's the right thing to say? Pray on it. Listen to God, the Holy Spirit. He'll give you what you need in that moment. That's his ministry. It's not hard. He's called the helper for a reason. He's going to help you. Is that difficult? No. He's going to help you. He's here to help. And he's God. So it's really important that we understand his ministry, yet it's, it's been so uh, hacked up, hyper-doctrinalized, um, perverted. It's very simple. He's your helper. You know what God wants for you. What's the greatest of all commands? To love. So everything the Spirit's going to do is going to move you into that direction. That's the greatest command of all. That's how we know, even if we don't have all the minutia, all the line item commands. If we have love, then we'll have a, at least a general idea of where to go in each and every situation. And God, the Holy Spirit, will be right there saying, yeah, you need to go this way. Maybe tomorrow it's the other way. But today it's this way. And tomorrow it's that way. And the next day it's this way. I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of things going on, like we talked about on Sunday. Maybe you need to stop putting him in a box and worry about what he's actually saying to you. Keeping in mind, again, the current point on the board, which is simple, <clears throat> consider the following as well. We looked at these things on Sunday. None of this is complicated, folks. The basics. God gives us commands. The umbrella command is to love. God's Spirit, we just saw Him, the Helper, convicts our conscience of right and wrong. That's one of the primary ways He helps us. We have a free will to obey or disobey said conviction. So we have the Word. That's alive. It contains the commands. 
excuse me, the law of God, if you would. So we have the word, including commands. He's given us the faculty of a good conscience. And then he gives us the spirit to convict us against the substance of the word that's alive and active and powerful in your soul. What's left? Your free will. I can either obey, and he can fill my sails, and we go on a journey in that direction, or I can disobey, and Satan fills my sails, all my own flesh, and we go in that direction. Which trade, I don't know if I'm using this nautical term, so don't crucify me, which trade wind am I going to choose? The one that takes me with the Holy Spirit towards love, or the one that goes in the opposite direction? Which wind is filling my sail on that decision? Those are the basics. But as we know in Scripture, there are different kinds of commands. Some commands are general, and I'm generalizing, no pun intended. Some commands are general, like walk by the Spirit, love one another. These are, you know, lifestyle type issues. Present active in the Greek. Lifestyle issues. Hey, Love your neighbor. Walk by the Spirit. These things. Some commands are more specific, like don't fornicate. Pornography. Choose to do something else. Go make yourself a coffee. Something. Hate to be too graphic, but you get the point. Specific. Don't lie. You have two choices. Did you do this thing? Be right back. Hold on a second. (laughs) You know already right on the spot whether or not you did it or you didn't do it. You can tell the truth or you can lie. It's not rocket science, folks. These are more isolated. So here's another analogy, and I guess I've got to close here. Suppose you and a friend from church hear about a need, and you decide to meet that need, and you do it in private but your friend doesn't. Later on that week, your friend, with the extra money that she didn't give to the needs of the church, buys a $500 purse and is showing everyone in the back of the church before class on Sunday. All the women are swooning over it, complimenting your friend's good taste, and her obvious superior sense of style. You are off to the side with your Kmart handbag, and you get jealous. Are you unhappy that your donation purchased the new stove that baked the yummy muffins that they are all enjoying as they fawn over the expensive purse? Not at all. After all, the Spirit moved you to joyfully give for that very reason. You don't reject or resent giving. The Spirit moved you to joyfully give for that very reason. The church needed a new stove. You paid for it. What a wonderful thing. So when it comes to your attitude about giving anonymously, your heart remains unchanged. In this sense, you knew the right thing to do, and you did it. So in that instance, you were and still are filled with the Spirit. 
However, what about the jealousy bit? Well, since jealousy is not from the Spirit, on that front, you cannot be filled. That ship's going that way. Right? So, in this vein of thought, and this is where I have to close, is it a good question to ask you if you were filled with the Spirit? I don't believe so. I don't believe that's a fair, or at least not a complete question. What does that mean, was I filled with the Spirit? Isn't it obvious? I don't resent or regret giving the $500 to buy the new stove. I love it. It's beautiful. It's what the church needed. It's what I wanted to do. I have no problem with that. But the jealousy thing, isn't it obvious? He doesn't want you to be jealous. Nothing good comes from that. Right? It's how we started class. He doesn't want you to be divided. You might want to pray for that person if they're, you know, if they're even in the wrong. Maybe it was your turn to give. None of your business anyway. But you get the point. Maybe you should pray on it for yourself. Why am I jealous? What's my problem? So it's a, is it a good question to ask you if you were filled with the Spirit? Just sort of this caught blanc question. I don't believe so. The very freeing perspective the Spirit's been giving us is that we are filled against commands. And I'll, I'll end with this. When we obey, we are filled, controlled by the convicting ministry of the Spirit. When we don't, we aren't. However, filling is relative to each application of God's commands in our lives which may overlap time-wise. I mean, how many people have one decision going on in their life at any given time? Maybe an infant who's like, I just want a bottle or a nipple. I don't care at this point, I'm really hungry. (laughs) Except for an infant? Seriously, except for an infant? Who has one command even in view? Who has one facet of life they're functioning in. Most of us have hundreds, arguably, right? If we really gather ourselves and wonder about all the things we're doing, things going on in our lives, the good decisions we're making, the things we're, you know, obeying very well, and the things we're not obeying so well, these things happen like this. It's not just, oh, you're controlled, you're not controlled. And it's not like a Lego set where they're all like serially. Do you know what I mean? It's not that way. There's a lot of things going on. It's the dynamic spiritual life. And that's all the Spirit's saying. He's saying, listen, it's not difficult. It's not difficult. I know, you, I know you're controlled by me in some ways. In some ways you're not. We're working on these things. I'm encouraging you over here. I'm discouraging you over here. I might even be disciplining you somehow. Fine. Amen? Is it difficult? Not really. It's not difficult at all. We like to make things difficult. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.